Welcome to The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion Podcast. I'm Danielle Rodoichin. Each episode features a conversation with a creative mind about the things that inspire them or that have given their life meaning in some way. From books, to art, to a piece of jewellery, these objects are collected into a cabinet which resides in physical form in the attic at 5 Carlos Place, the Matches Fashion Townhouse in London. Today's guest is Victoria Siddle, director of Freeze Art Fairs. Since joining the tiny London-based contemporary art magazine in 2003, she has helped grow it into the many-pronged titan of the art world it is today, with fairs in London, New York and Los Angeles, as well as public sculpture parks, Freeze Academy and a lively talks programme. Ahead of this year's Freeze Art Fair in London, I sat down with Victoria to talk about her tips on buying art promoting female artists and sustainability, and how she sees artists responding to the political issues of the day. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Danielle. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> We're at the Shard in London. Matches Fashion's head offices are not at Five Carlos Place, where we normally record. Um, but I believe this was quite convenient for you, as you live nearby. I walked here. Are you a Londoner? Are you, do you feel your job's so international? But do you feel quite like you seem to me like a very London type person? Yeah, I think it's it's a different thing to being born in a city to have chosen it. Um, but that has a significance too, I think, having chosen where you want to spend your life. And I've lived here for nearly twenty years. Since some of the year 2000, I moved to London. Mm. So, yeah, I think I probably count as some kind of Londoner by now. And you're the director of Freeze. So you've got a massive job, which is very, I mean, it involved a lot of travel. And you do have to be in lots of places at once, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, I travel a lot, um, partly because I oversee the fairs internationally. So one is in New York and one is now in L.A. We launched Freeze L.A. this year. Um, and, of course, the galleries that participate in those fairs and the collectors and curators who attend them are from all over the world. Um, so there is a lot of travel involved, but it's always quite amazing places and um, I quite enjoy it. Mm. So, I mean, it would be Do you enjoy a coming back to London? Are you one of those people that is relieved to come back or are you one of those people that wishes they could continue on an adventure somewhere? No, I'm always happy to come home. Yeah. And that's, I suppose it's not just coming to London, it's coming home. And, um, but for me, it's also about just going somewhere new. Um, I moved around a lot as a kid and I love discovering new places and traveling to new places. So even within London, it's nice to be able to find a new part of it and get to know it, um, not just as a visitor, but as someone who's sort of spending every day there and walking around and so on. You've brought some things with you, which we'd normally put into the cabinet at Five Carlos Place if we were there, but we're not. So um, but you've brought them with you in your bag. Um, <laughs> and one of them is really heavy, so I'm impressed that you carried them with to come here it's small but heavy which um, is the first one that you'd like to talk about well I'll talk about this one as you mentioned it so okay. this is um, this is a bronze a small bronze sculpture that you can hold in your hand and it's by um, Amalia Pica um, who is uh, originally from Argentina but has lived in London for a long time um, and is a friend as well as being a great artist um, and this is a piece she made this is a series that started when she was commissioned to do something for the Folkestone Triennial um, and she found seashells in Folkestone on the beach and she made them into sculptures and she gave them to residents and shops in Folkestone who displayed them in their windows 
Um, and then she made bronze editions of them as well. And this is one of them. Um, and she's just a, she's a very generous artist. Her work is like, you know, this sort of idea of taking it into people's homes and just giving it to them for them to live with and show. She did a project with the Chisholm Hale years ago um, where she, she made a sculpture that traveled around different people's homes and they could just look after it and live with it for a few weeks at a time. <coughs> and we had her sculpture come and live with us for a few weeks. That's a nice kind idea, of, isn't it? Kind of sad um, to see it go. How sit a piece of yeah. art. So there's this generosity to it and, um, you know, and sort of community feeling as well that you don't have to be a wealthy person to have really interesting work of art in your house. But this piece as well um, is important to me partly because I also bought it at Freeze in London and I very rarely get time to even think about buying art when I'm at the fair yeah. <laughs> or maybe I'll start thinking about it on Sunday afternoon by which time everything's gone so um so yeah I did actually get my act together this time and um just uh yeah I love this piece so, what makes you what's the thing that makes you want to buy a piece of art I've been talking quite a lot recently about I gave a talk recently about collectors and what makes somebody a collector and I think there is a real difference between buying somebody, you know, being someone who loves art and can maybe afford to buy a few works and being a collector. Because there's this kind of, there's almost like a bug that makes you a collector, this sort of drive to really acquire things, to make something cohesive that, you know, when you see a gap in your collection, you'll do anything to kind of fill it. Um, and I definitely don't have that, you know. I, I have bought works of art, but kind of just a few things here and there, often by artists I know, a couple of older things from Freeze Masters, but you know, I'm obviously buying it sort of <laughs> bottom end of the price range. Um, and um, yeah, it's just, it, I mean, there are often things that have meaning to me and actually three of the works that I've chosen today are made by artists. So it's, it's I guess the, um, these, these as, as works, everything I have has some, meaning to me because of the artists themselves or where I bought it or the object and what it means and so on. So some sort of personal story behind yeah. the piece. Yeah. Yeah. You said that you moved around a lot when you were young, as a child growing up. Um, I think your father, he worked in the army, so you were stationed in lots of different places. Yes. Um, and I think, I believe you went to boarding school. I did. Quite young. Um, which boarding school did you go to? Um, I went to a school called St Anselm's in Derbyshire, first of all. So boarding and school then in the UK. another one and then another one. I mean, I was at boarding school. You were for, eight? Was yeah. So I was at boarding was school for 10 years. Was that quite young? 10 years. Um, it is probably, yes. I mean, I, now I have friends with eight-year-olds. I see that it's quite young to go to boarding school. Um, at the time, though, my parents uh, moved to Zimbabwe for my father's job um, and were strongly advised to put me in boarding school in the UK rather than take me into the Zimbabwean education system at that time. And, and of course, there was no internet then. They'd never been to Zimbabwe. No one they, ever, they knew had ever been to Zimbabwe. So they couldn't really research it to the point that they were comfortable not taking that advice. Um, so, um, so yeah, I stayed at a boarding school in the UK and went out for holidays three times a year to Must Africa, quite cool to which was amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I definitely had the most exotic holidays of anyone I knew. Yeah. <laughs> And after school, you went on to university, I think Bristol University, you studied English yep. Lit. When was that? Was it, was it when Bristol was having its cool cultural moment with music? It was 97 to 2000. So it was kind so, of the drum and bass moment in Bristol. <laughs> I guess coming from boarding school, it was the first time I'd been in a much more kind of like 
realistic cross-section of society yeah. of people my age and you know with all kinds of different interests and as you mentioned music and so on um so it was an eye-opener in many ways um one of the first things I did when I got there was was get a job just in a bar um because and, you needed to for money or- yeah I needed some money but also I think it you know I I while I enjoy studying um I also really enjoy working <laughs> and actually it was when I left university and got a full-time job and got really into it. What was your first full-time job? Um, it was actually at Christie's yeah. in London. So and I started before I even graduated. Um, so I was kind of itching to get into that kind of work and like throw myself into something. And you were itching to get into art by that point? Um, I didn't really know anything about it, having studied English and philosophy and not having that kind of background for my family or, you know, I just, I didn't really, it was quite clueless. I'd done an art history A-level. Um, but uh, it seemed kind of interesting and intriguing. Um, and I wanted to know more about it for sure. Um, and I knew somebody who worked at Christie's, and it was like a friend of a friend was looking for someone in an administrative role, that didn't require an art history degree. Um, and I got the job. Um, and yeah, that was the kind of the beginning of it. I Did suppose. your mum work? She did on and off, but um, because actually my mother was in the army when she met my father. And when she got married to him, when she was quite young, she was about 25, um, it was suggested to her that she should probably quit her job. Um, and she didn't. And then she became pregnant with me, so it was their first child. And then she was told definitively, you have to quit your job. So she had to leave, that was it. You couldn't, because she was pregnant? Because she was pregnant, yeah. Um, you, couldn't, you couldn't have a child and, and, uh, and be in the army at that point. Um, so she did, and you know she's since done various jobs. You know she, but realistically, as an army wife, as they were then known, um, there wasn't very much you could commit to because postings were every two years, and my father was being posted to, as I mentioned, Zimbabwe, to Germany, to Northern Ireland, Washington D.C., um, and so every two years he'd find himself in a completely different country. Um, so she did quite, you know, she did some charity work, and and then when they settled eventually. Um, in the West Country, in the UK. She worked for years for Bath University, but um, she didn't really have... So went into academia? Not into academia, it was more um, just sort of working at the university with students. Um, But um, yeah, it was just that she didn't really have the opportunity to have a career. Um, And... um, Were you aware of that? Yeah, and I think, you know, she she certainly could have done, given the opportunity, you know. so yeah, no, I definitely was aware of it, and I think um, perhaps it's thinking about it now. Perhaps it's one of the things that's made me sort of determined to have a great career, yeah. and you know, um, have children as well, and that not be a barrier. Um, what else have you got here to put into the cabinet and talk about? So I also have another work, another piece by an artist. Um, this is something I was given. Um, it's by an artist called Walid Beshti. He's based in Los Angeles. And he came to London in 2014, did a show at the Barbican um, in The Curve. And there was a show of cyanotypes, all made on detritus, basically, like old newspapers and pieces of wood and old concert tickets and so on. Um, and he made these cyanotypes, you know, this very traditional process of kind of leaving something to dry with an object on it, and this um, process that then creates kind of a shadow of the object. Um, 
and just covered the walls of the curve in these cyanotypes. And it was a great show and I spent some time with him while he was here and I talked quite a bit about the show and its work and so on and, um, and I just loved what he'd done. Uh, and he then sent me this in the mail um, and it's a block of wood, a small block of wood with a pair of scissors shadowed onto it in cyanotype. And then it's got my name and address kind of branded on the back of the piece of wood and the stamp was stuck directly onto the wood. So there was no, it, was, it wasn't wrapped, it wasn't in an envelope. So it just came in the post. Just came in the post, like, just like that. So it got a little bashed up on the way and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it also connects to, you know, other work that he's made, which is, you know, these sort of glass FedEx boxes that get sent and just arrive as they are cracked and so on. So, the, you know, the, the mailing of it and what happens to it on the journey. Yeah, that becomes part can, of becomes the part of the work. Piece, yeah. Um, so yeah, what an amazing thing to get in the post. I was really <laughs> excited. So it's kind of sat on my mantelpiece um, ever since. Props to the post person. Yeah, exactly. Well. For actually getting it piece. to me. Um, Obviously, didn't fit through the letterbox. It's a bit too. It's, it I don't know. I think it might just squeeze through. Just I think right it did. Yeah. I think it did. Um, and just this image of scissors as well, which are kind of wonderful mm. objects. Yeah. Um, yeah, so kind when of symmetry and I think of always it, fascinated artists. Do you have it up, the scissors facing up or the, your address facing up? Scissors facing up. Yeah. So it just sits on the mantelpiece, but it's just a, you know, it's a kind of, um, you know, symbol of that friendship as well that I have with him, but also it's kind of like a, it's an amazing piece of male art, which is this yeah. sort of grand tradition, yeah. you know, from sort of Ray Johnson and so on of like sending artworks in the mail and that being part of the, the process. And it says, it's stamped on the top, it says WB4VS 2015. So it's a very special thing. <laughs> Tell me about the journey that took you from Christie's to Freeze. So I was at, I was at Christie's for just under four years. And um, I heard about, I mean, obviously knew about Freeze magazine and heard about this art fair that the Freeze founders were thinking of starting and everyone's like it'd be interesting to see if that works in London. Is that sort of 2003? So the first fair happened in October 2003 yeah. so yeah in 2003 people were talking about it and they were like interesting to see how you know whether London can um kind of get behind this and whether it'll be successful here and I Because London got... hadn't really had anything didn't have a big <clears throat> art fair at that point in the way that Art no. Basel or... And that, that was yeah. kind of and that was a, a strange thing I suppose then because it was such a you know, it was an important sort of centre of the market and a lot of things were happening and there was this amazing generation of artists who, you know, had kind of like brought the eyes of the world to London, but there wasn't actually that moment that brings the whole city together. And Matthew and Amanda, who founded Freeze, obviously spotted that and um, and decided they would be the, the people to do it. It was a brave decision at the time. So and I remember them saying that the moment they knew it would work, was the opening of Tate Modern in the year 2000. And being in that turbine hall and seeing people around them from all over the world, seeing all the major American museum directors, collectors from over Europe. And they said they looked around them and realized that London would, that people would come, the world would come to London for the right event. So it's just about putting on the right event. Um, so in the run up to the fair, I got increasingly interested in what they were doing. And there was actually, there was a job ad in the Guardian, the Guardian jobs pages um, for a head of sponsorship at Freeze. And I went for an interview uh, probably in the summer of 2003, so before the first fair. And then I think it all just got, 
<laughs> you know, it got kind of too much for them to think about bringing somebody in at that point. And they were just like, we'll talk about it after the fair. So I went to the fair and I just found it so exciting. You know, I felt like it, it was this, just this extraordinary event that appeared in Regent's Park with this incredible art in it from all over the world, but just this energy as well, you know, and the way that sort of galvanized the city and, you know, just sort of felt like it had its sort of tentacles out throughout the entire city with things going on everywhere. And so I just thought, this is, this is what I want to do. So I called them straight afterwards. I was like, please, can I, you know, bring me back for a second interview, which they did. And they gave me the job. And I started in January 2004. Around about 2010, we started having conversations about a historical art fair in London and what that might look like. It was the time when Grosvenor House had just ceased to be. And that was the big, that had been the big historical fair in London, very traditional. Um, and uh, and even sort of SLAD, who's the Society of London Art Dealers, had approached Matthew and Amanda saying, you know, you or someone should think about replacing it. Um, so we started talking about it. Because Freeze was always, is always <clears throat> is about contemporary art. Obviously. Yes, very much and so. So why, why was it, why, why were these conversations happening? Why is it important to showcase art that's pre-2000? So it's a good question. And Freeze had been really only about contemporary art up until, up until that point. Um, but I think what what we were aware of was that, you know, if you, and I think there was also a, a sort of survey done around the 100th issue of Freeze magazine asking a huge number of artists what had inspired them most in their work. And it was fascinating the number of artists who'd come back and said Velasquez or Bruegel or Titian or, you know, ancient marble carvings, whatever it was, that it was not really the art of their time. Um, and this was, you know, this was a kind of an eye opener just to see it, you know, that to that extent on paper, um, that artists were really kind of looking backwards for inspiration. Um, and, and that really this is kind of, you know, art history is quite linear and one thing connects to another and contemporary art isn't, um, it's not a vacuum, you know, it's, it's just the next step in history. So, um, so they gave me this sort of challenge of uh, researching uh, the idea of a historical art fair and how, what it would look like if Freeze did one, you know, so not just replicating what was out there already, but doing something in a very fresh and innovative way um, and building a business plan to go along with that. And if I could do both of those things, then um, we would do it and I could run it. So it was obviously a very appealing prospect. Um, and so I spent about a year speaking to people, curators and artists and gallerists and so on about what it could look like. Um, and that's what became Freeze Masters, which we launched in 2012. And was it incredibly um, successful? It was, away, I mean, it, it got an amazing reception. I think because it felt very different from fairs that people had been to before. I think also because we brought in a big contemporary art audience to a historical fair, many of whom had not been to a historical fair, and um, so you know, it takes we're seeing... place. It's a it's intense in Regent's Park, separate yeah. to the main fair, but their works are also for sale. Absolutely, yeah. No, it's an art fair with galleries exhibiting and showing art that's for sale. Um, but some of the things we did differently, for example, were um, juxtaposing art from different periods. So you would see a gallery showing medieval sculpture alongside a gallery showing Donald Judd. Um, and somebody would be showing Picasso drawings alongside Bruegel painting and Giacometti. Like just seeing all of these things um, juxtaposed, you could like see these kind of connections between different periods of history. Um, and artists loved it as well. Like so many artists came and 
and really enjoyed the experience, which was kind of wonderful. I was talking to like Jeremy Della, who spent hours there, and Michael Craig Martin. Who, to see pieces that will be going into private collections. Yeah, well, so exactly. And often yeah. it's the opportunity to, yeah. you know, see works mm-hmm. that. Um, and I think there's this perception as well that everything was going to be crazy expensive if it was old, which again isn't really the case. Um, you know, there was one gallery there who was selling a Cranach painting um, that was, it looked almost, you know, it, it was such a strong kind of visual reference with John Curran. And I think obviously he's looked very much at old masters. Um, and, um, and the dealer was joking that he thought his Cranach was less expensive than a John Curran. <laughs> So, so I think that was also, you know, that was an eye opener for people too, that they could yeah. buy a piece of ancient sculpture, for example, and that it might be actually quite, um, like, relatively inexpensive. I'm not saying affordable because we're still talking in the thousands of pounds, but you know, it's um, there are extraordinary things there, and yeah, the reception was amazing to it, and um, you know, the other thing we did was bring artists in to speak about, to give talks about. The art of the past and what it meant to them and how it had inspired them um and this year we have um so coming up in october we have ai weiwei speaking at the fair uh mark bradford uh elizabeth payton edmund deval so those are things that you know we've had amazing talks programs each year tim marlowe at the royal academy is programming them at the moment and um yeah that's been a real highlight sort of like hearing those artists um speak about art history mm. um, I just if anyone who's just interest, interested in contemporary art it just kind of makes your understanding of those artists work so much richer by looking at what they're looking at mm. and then it's grown so the new, Freeze New York has since opened so you have a fair there yes and so that opened LA. Freeze New York opened the same year as Freeze Masters in 2012 um, and at that point I wasn't working on that I was just working on Freeze Masters and then in uh, sort of 2014, 2015, I took over running all the fairs from Matthew and Amanda and the founders, um, which at the time was Freeze London, Freeze Masters, Freeze New York. And then since then, um, we launched Freeze LA in February this year. So that was a, that was a big step, kind of yeah. adding a new fair um, to the calendar and also something we really thought about very deeply. And interestingly, there were some parallels with how it felt in LA and how it felt in London when Freeze started, in that it's the city with, it has everything, Los Angeles, it has the artists, it has the art schools, it has the galleries, it has the museums. Um, and the only thing that was missing really was this moment to tie all of that together and to bring people from all over the world to really, you know, celebrate that and pay attention to it. Um, and the fair can really act as that catalyst, you know, the fair's sort of at the heart of it. But what we've always done in London and New York and now LA has worked very closely with the museums in the city, the galleries in the city, the collectors in the city to make sure that everybody's really behind it and everybody's benefiting from it as well. How do you measure the success the of a fair? Is it by is it commercial? Mm. How much art is sold? What the footfall is? Mm. What the press is? Or is it a yeah. combination? So I think freezes may be quite unusual in that way in that we kind of, maybe because of the cities that we're in, we have um, quite a kind of hybrid model in a sense and that we fundamentally at a fair you have to get the best galleries to bring great artworks and then you have to bring people to buy them and if that bit doesn't work nothing works um so the main measure of success of course is is the art selling and you know um are the right people coming and buying it and so on um but 
I think maybe partly because, as I mentioned, the cities that we're in, but also maybe Freeze's roots in editorial as well. Um, of course, it began with the magazine. Um, we've always had very strong curated programming too, which has quite a public focus. Um, so actually that kind of, you know, the public engagement too and the critical engagement, you know, um, is really important to us as well. Um, and actually an example of that is, which is a really good balance between those two, is free sculpture, which we run in Regent's Park every year. And for the last three years, we've run it for three months over the summer. So it's open now in July and will be open until after the fair in October. Um, and it's essentially a selling exhibition. You know, galleries are bringing these really ambitious, extraordinary outdoor works and putting them in very beautiful English gardens in Regent's Park. But it's also a free public exhibition and hundreds of thousands of people, maybe a million, the parks tell us, <laughs> will see it over the course of the summer. Um, and people can just come again and again. We focus our education programming around that as well. Um, and we just this year did one for the first time in New York. Too. What's the education program? So we're working with um, a charity called the Saturday Club this year in London. Um, and they run kind of arts education programs for kids who won't get any kind of art education in their schools um, on Saturday mornings. So it's quite a small charity, but we have um, we have a charity we work with every year, a charity partner. Um, we take money at our cloak rooms and so on at the fair, and then we give all of that to a charity partner. So they'll be the recipient of that, but we're also working with them on um, a uh, sort of a, a pro an education program around free mm. sculpture as well. Do you think there's enough art in the public education system? No. For kids? no. And <laughs> um, why do you think it's important that kids study art? I think it's incredibly important that kids study art. Um, I think it's the kind of basis of, you know, like having a, a cultural future for a country or, you know, for the world. It's just like if they're not studying it at school, when are they going to get the opportunity to understand that it's something they love and are good at and then become people who then become artists in the future? Um, and by wiping it out at that sort of early level, there is that risk that you miss an entire generation of artists in the future. Um, it's also, you know, people are good at different things. And, you know, just the idea that in order to be successful at school, you have to be good at maths or science um, just rules out a huge part of the population. It just seems mad. And so much of our industry, like so much of what is good about, you know, the sort of, what the sort of, the, you know, the economy of this country thrives on is actually creative. Um, so surely educating people for that and to feed into it makes sense. I mean, there's just so many reasons, but mainly, just, you know, partly just enriching people's lives, you know, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just enjoyable on a very basic level too. So I think there are humanitarian, but also um, economical reasons for it, all of which combined make it, you know, just doesn't make any sense to be removing that from the curriculum. We haven't spoken about any of your objects for a while, so let's come back to those. So I have, I know this seems a slightly prosaic object, but I have my hay water bottle with me um, that what I carry. Hay, what's hay? Hay is a, I mean, it's a, it's a company that makes furniture and objects. Um, and this is, it's just, it's a reusable water bottle, essentially. It's a very beautiful one. It's pink with a red lid. Um, and the reason I brought it is because um, it's, it was actually my, it was a Christmas present from Freeze. Um, the the uh, sort of owners of Freeze decided to give everybody at Freeze 
um, all kind of hundred and something of us, uh, a hay water bottle and hay teapot for Christmas. So it was a lovely present. They're very beautiful objects, but also it's it's just it's a conversation that um, we have been having for many years and um, are very focused on at the moment, um, which is around sustainability. And um, this actually, like we've been quite, Matthew Slotover particularly, he's one of the founders of Freeze, has been um, very kind of ahead of the curve with this in a way because he commissioned about 11 years ago a carbon audit of, um, it was only Freeze London back then, um, from a company called Julie's Bicycle, just to see how, as a big event, we could be <coughs> um, more environmentally friendly. Uh, and and following that, we, you know, we've been trying out different types of biofuel um, to make uh, that, you know, sort of be more green in our approach using fuel um, and various other initiatives. And this is, you know, it's, it's something that's very much a kind of, obviously, a conversation at the moment with Olaf Oelianson's show just opening at the Tate. And he's really ignited that conversation and Tate have just announced their initiatives. Um, so, as I said, it's something we've been working on for years, but actually just started to make some real progress um, with, for example, the green fuel. And, um, and I'm optimistic that we're going to be able to use that kind of across all of our fairs very soon. Um, and yeah, so this sort of just not carrying a plastic water bottle around is just like a nice constant reminder of, you know, of like the small changes that we can make. Mm. And it's interesting you mentioned, um, you know, artists responding to issues mm. of the day. Um, and I was interested to know um, how, because in the time that you've been working at Freeze and the time that Freeze has grown to what it is, obviously the cultural climate has changed and, and the political climate has changed. I was just interested to hear your thoughts on how the art world is responding to that, if there are any changes. Could Freeze have happened? Could it have started at this moment like it could have mm. done then? Um, I mean, it's it's tricky to know like what kind of impact this is going to have. I think the you know the sort of first responders to these things generally are artists because they are obviously very aware of what's going on around them in the world, and many of them are very politicised, um, and that often gets sort of then sort of influences their work and is incorporated into their work. So, you know, contemporary fairs are a good place to kind of see how that is being reflected in artist work and in sort of the discourse around that as well. Um, I mean, Freeze is really, it's a very international event and people come from all over the world for it. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to see how that would be impacted by something like Brexit. The concern is more just for how it feels, as a, how London feels as a city. Um, and, you know, in terms of it being them, open or In terms of being open and in terms of being a place that artists want to live and work. You know, I think that's the thing that's incredibly important to all of us is this this remains a city for artists um, that they want to live and work in. Um, and and I think for the majority of artists, that kind of openness and freedom and, you know, interest and openness to other cultures is incredibly important. Representation of female artists has, is something that um, we've seen a lot of in the last few years. Mm. Um, obviously, Faith Ringgold's just um, had that large major exhibition at the Serpentine, um, Cindy Sherman at the National Portrait Gallery. Is this something you are personally um, invested in, actively support? Yeah, definitely. Or is it almost too obvious, if you know um, what I mean? I mean, it's, 
it's something we've been talking about and acting on for years now. Um, so, for example, when Freeze Masters began uh, back in 2012, um, I was very aware that the kind of work that was shown by um, the galleries who were going to participate in the fair, who were showing 20th century work and old masters and so on, it was pretty much entirely sort of white Western male artists because that's sort of the art history market or the art market for historical art as we know it. Um, not 100%, but certainly there's a very strong bias towards that. Um, so we introduced a section called Spotlight there, which was to highlight presentations of works by artists from other geographies, uh, but also women artists. So that's always been around 50% women artists. And that's something that's continued. And Is that actually something you have... actively try to implement? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it was very much sort of engineered that way. Um, so Adriana Pedrosa was the original curator of that back in 2012. Um, we allocated 20 booths to these presentations of artists making work in the 60s and 70s primarily, um, and and ensured that uh, you know at least half of them were female artists and at least half were from outside of the Western world, um, and that they were many of them were kind of discoveries for people, and that uh, that section has just been such a hit with curators and you know amazing things have come out of it artists have got museum shows out of it or um you know or get like representation from other galleries and so on um so that's been that's been this kind of great sort of success from freeze masters and actually we do it in new york now as well and have done for quite a few years uh, laura hotman who's the director of the drawing center in new york now curates that both in london and new york um and then in freeze london over the last couple of years two years ago we had um a curated exhibition called sex work which was um, about women, female artists who were making work again in the 70s, 80s mostly. Um, that was about um, gender and sexuality. And, and most, I think all of the artists in the section um, had been, their work had been censored at some point, often by museums. Um, so they'd really struggled to sell their work, but also to show it even in, you know, in public spaces. Um, so giving a platform to them sort of and showing that kind of this very important moment in history that these pioneering artists were kind of making this work, even knowing that they weren't going to be able to sell it or show it in museums, um, felt very important. And that generated a lot of interesting conversation as well. Is there any, anything else for um, our cabinet that you have to talk about? Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about my um, House of Voltaire blanket as well. So Studio Voltaire is a um, non-profit uh, gallery in Clapham uh, with artist studios as well. Um, it has an incredible program that gives artists uh, exhibitions at really kind of pivotal moments in their career. Uh, often it's their first exhibition in the UK or it's their first ever institutional show. Um, the uh, director there, Joe Scotland, um, and the curators work very closely with the artists, often encouraging them to make work that's quite different to their practice so far um, so it's quite an experimental place and artists speak so highly of the experience of doing shows there which is really lovely to hear um, and then it's also this artist studio building um, which is incredibly important at a time like this in London when you know property prices have been increasing obviously very significantly over the past few years to the point that artist studio space in London is kind of endangered and that comes back to our previous point about making sure that this is a city that artists a want to live and work in and b can afford to live and work in um 
and the studio provision is is an essential part of that. So we actually have a capital comp- campaign underway at the moment um, to completely redo the studio building um, and to create more kind of education and social spaces there. But also there will be provision for about 75 artists once that work is done. Um, and one of the ways we've sort of fundraised for Studio Voltaire and its exhibition and education programmes um, for about the last 10 years now, actually probably eight years, um, is through House of Voltaire, which is a pop-up shop that sells artist editions, but also uh, products made with artists. So blankets, t-shirts, ashtrays, all sorts, tea towels. Um, and I have a blanket by the artist Renee So uh, from the very first edition of House of Voltaire, which was soon after I joined the board and I kind of helped them get it off the ground. But yeah, so it's just a, and it's just a nice reminder of, you know, that kind of um, part of my life that I do really enjoy, mm. um, sort of uh, supporting what they're doing. It just feels like a it must be nice to get your mission. head out of freeze sometimes as well and just do it something is. that's. It's great dealing with other people's problems. Yeah. It all seems so clear. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else left that you wanted to put into your cabinet? Um, when I have this ring. So it doesn't Beautiful. really come off. We my... haven't spoken about fashion. I did want to ask you about fashion because you always look very, you look so chic. Well, thank and you. Tell us about the ring, which I noticed already. So the ring, um, which is kind of, it, it's either on for a long time or off for a long time because it's very, it, it doesn't, doesn't come off very easily. So <laughs> it's been on for a few months now. Um, the ring is, uh, it's a vintage ring that's quite noticeable, I guess. It looks like little hot air balloons. Um, and um, it was bought for me by... Francois, my partner, um, uh, when our daughter was born. And it's from um, uh, a friend, Dura Lowu, who obviously makes fantastic clothes himself, but also has an amazing collection of vintage jewellery that he sells in his shop. So this came from Dura's shop and Francois chose it and uh, obviously makes me think of my daughter as well. So mm. it's very, very precious to me. So it's probably lucky it doesn't come off my finger. <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure. And um, good luck with the show in October. Thank you. That was an episode of The Collector's House, a Matches Fashion podcast. You can find more episodes and more about Five Carlos Place on the Matches Fashion website, and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Matches Fashion, at Matches Fashion Man, and the hashtag 5CarlosPlace. Thanks for listening.